0: If your bookie is not giving you the best rewards, switch to Paddy power. And if one leg of your 4-plus-fold bet builder lets you down, get a free bet. This football season, switch to Paddy power. Pre-match only, max free bet, 10 euro. Excludes enhanced match odds, min odds 1 to 5 per leg on an exclusive. Teas and C supply. play safe, 18 plus gamblingcare.ie.
1: For the past 20 years, I've been immersed in the world of true crime and have confronted serial killers face to face. My name is M. William Phelps, host of the hit podcast, Paper Ghosts. Now, my new show, Crossing the Line. Get ready for the uncensored truth, interviews with top experts, and stories of the missing and murdered you have not heard anywhere else.
2: I mean, he was the master manipulator of coercive control. It turns out that the dead
0: guy worked out at the same gym.
1: Listen to Crossing the Line, coming October 12. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: I'm Sammy J, and we're back with season three of my podcast, Let's Be Real with Sammy J. As part of Gen Z, I love that my generation is inspiring change, and I'm so excited to talk to more celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers to find out what they're passionate about, how they're changing the world, or helping others feel less alone. Season three is going to be exciting, revealing, and empowering. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You don't arrive there right away. The people running the place, the young protesters from the front line, the Primera Linea, have set up several blocks worth of security
4: perimeters.
1: We were greeted by a 19 year old kid who goes by the name Flaco, and groups of young protesters with their faces covered and walkie talkies guard these streets that eventually lead to the intersection where where Puerto Resistencia is located. Yeah. Yeah. Bueno, sigamos. Sigamos. He leads us through you know, two or three security perimeters and to the heart of Puerto Resistencia, the autonomous zone, which is this sort of plaza that when we get there is full of people. And as you get closer to the heart of Puerto Resistencia, you hear this noise kind of rising up, this sort of festival-like noise of music and people chanting and people singing. And then you get to the autonomous zone itself. An autonomous zone is what happens when a group of protesters manage to physically take over a space to provide a sort of example of an alternative way of doing things, of a sort of alternative social order that doesn't require a, a government, a state, or police, or any other sort of expression of the sorts of authorities that we usually rely on to, to structure what we do.
4: The 30th of May, the He
1: takes us to a small concrete building. This building is what used to be a police station. The, The front line collectively decided to turn the building into a library. Over the kind of burned out black concrete has been completely covered in murals and graffiti and has... Big banner, hand-painted banner that says
4: Menos kites, mas bibliotecas.
1: "Fewer police stations, more libraries."
4: Por más más
1: Cali became the epicenter of the protests very early on, and it's also one of the most visibly unequal cities in a very unequal country. Right, the the, the sort of palpable gap between the very richest people and the rest. It's really obvious in Cali, and it's really sharp. And so, you know, that sort of was a mix of ingredients that made it so that Cali was the perfect tinderbox for this uprising to kind of explode.
4: If we don't do it now, we have the world before us, that all world here, No lo vamos a lograr nunca. Tenemos que ser la juventud del cambio. On the streets of Colombia, violent
3: protests. After the country's president, Ivan Duque, ordered 7,000 military personnel into the heart of an uprising.
5: Colombia is marking one month since a wave of deadly protests began. Started as an outcry against a controversial tax reform, but soon turned into a national uprising against
2: growing poverty and inequality. This is Vice News Reports, and I'm your host, Ariel Zemros. For the last two months, there have been these nationwide protests in the country of Colombia. My colleague, David Noriega, traveled there last month to interview frontline protesters and government officials to really get a picture of the situation on the ground. David sat down with one of our producers, Ser Quevedo, to share what this moment can tell us about the past, the present and the future of politics in Colombia.
3: Hey, David, how's it going? I'm good, Ser. How are you? I'm all right. I'm really happy that you are here to talk to us about what's happening in Colombia, because there's a lot from what I'm seeing in the news. And I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us a little bit about what's going on in this moment.
1: So what's happening in Colombia right now is that for more than two months now, we've seen a huge popular uprising. There have been massive protests Constant confrontations with the police, a lot of police violence, a lot of deaths and injuries and disappearances, really on a scale and for a duration that the country has never seen
3: before. And you have sort of these autonomous zones like the one that you were just telling us about, right, in places like Cali. Are there other autonomous zones across the country or is the one in Cali kind of unique?
1: There are other things that you could describe as autonomous zones in Cali and in other cities, including Bogotá, the capital, um, but those tend to be more transient, right? You have protesters blocking streets for a period of time uh, before the police come in and disperse them. Puerto Resistencia is really the, the definitely the biggest, and it's the one that they were able to sustain in a consistent way for the longest period of time. And so for that reason, Because Puerto Resistencia was so large and so vibrant and so sort of entrenched because they were able to maintain it for so long, it kind of became a symbol for the uprising at large.
3: You've described to me this idea that that what we're seeing sort of in this moment with these protests is actually sort of a direct result of a kind of opening up of of the political landscape, essentially, across Colombia as a result of this cascade of historical events. And I'm wondering if you can kind of set the scene for us.
1: Yeah. So, for more than half a century, Colombian politics was completely defined and very tightly constrained by the armed conflict. Colombia
0: is the most violent nation in the Western
1: Hemisphere. This immensely complex... Multi front.
2: And fear in Colombia tonight. The Colombian drug barons, thought to be fleeing their government's crackdown, have made
1: their presence felt with startling ferocity. Incredibly bloody, spectacularly violent. The
5: hunt is on after two deadly attacks by leftist guerrillas in
1: Colombia. Unimaginably tragic. Protracted civil war. His relatives couldn't escape violence. Nine of them, including his grandparents, mother, and father, were
2: murdered by paramilitaries and state forces.
1: The question of power and inequality in Colombia, as in many Latin American countries, revolves largely around the question of land. Land is and has been for a long time the main way to accumulate capital and power in Colombia. Throughout Colombian history, there has been a very small group of people who owns the vast majority of the land and exploits that land in order to accumulate tremendous amounts of wealth and in the process dispossess and exploit the rest of the population. <laughs> The conflict as it's understood today begins in the mid 1960s. You have groups of peasants in Colombia who decide that the only way to resolve this profound inequality around the ownership of land is through armed revolution. They subscribe to various different flavors of communist ideology, primarily sort of Marxism-Leninism. And they take up arms, and they form various different insurgent guerrilla groups. The main one of those is the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. The FARC grew to become a formidable, well-organized army that existed pretty much across the entire territory of Colombia. That was a direct threat to the ruling classes, which were one and the same with the ruling classes in the sense of the state.
0: While guerrilla warfare batters the Colombian countryside,
1: political violence and organized crime menace the cities. And it became a war between armed revolutionary groups, the state, and these private armies, these private paramilitary formations put together by large, wealthy, landowning elites in order to protect their interests in the face of the insurgency.
2: Armed in the 1990s to fight against left-wing guerrillas, they were accused of massacring thousands of innocent civilians. Inspiring fear was their main objective for success.
1: And then, of course, there is the factor of cocaine. Ground zero on the war on
3: drugs, Colombia.
1: The Colombian armed conflict was dramatically reshaped by the emergence of a mass market for cocaine in the United States, primarily in the 80s.
5: At war, it appears, are the Colombian government and the narco-traficantes, the drug lords who control the multi-billion dollar cocaine trade. At least, that's what it seems like from the outside except that the real story is much more complex.
1: It introduced this new way of making tremendous unimaginable amounts of money to every actor in the conflict, right? So the guerrillas got into the drug game, the paramilitaries got into the drug game, and the state got into the drug game. People and organizations who at one point or another were driven largely by politics were all of a sudden driven by the desire to get rich. The main thing that it did was it just prolonged the conflict. It made it so that things like negotiated solutions were suddenly kind of polluted by these criminal interests that had permeated every faction in the
3: war. All right, so I just want to reiterate to make sure I'm fully understanding. So basically, since the 1960s, there has been this conflict between these various groups, right, leftist guerrillas, the government, and these paramilitary formations, all of them involved in one way or another with cocaine and the cocaine business. And so I'm wondering, like, when do things kind of come to a head? Like, what year would you say things kind of shift? So things really start to take a turn in 2002,
1: which is the year that Álvaro Uribe gets elected president.
4: Juro a Dios, y prometo al pueblo.
0: Uribe was sworn in in August in the national parliament. His challenge dramatically underlined by rebel mortar bombs falling just a block away from the ceremony.
1: You have a president, Álvaro Uribe, who comes from the sort of large landowning elite who decides that he is going to be the one who wins the war. Right. Like he's going to be the president who finally defeats the insurgency through the use of military force.
0: Alvaro Uribe says no more concessions, no more fruitless negotiations with the guerrillas, force them to end a civil war that has lasted four decades and killed more than 200,000 Colombians
1: came to be known that um, he and his family and his associates had an extensive web of connections to the sort of right-wing paramilitary side of the conflict. And he really embodied that as president. And also during this time, I should say, there were billions of dollars in assistance from the United States. So the United States really sort of threw their weight behind Uribe and his kind of, uh, you know, no-holds-barred war approach to the conflict.
3: And is Uribe able to end this decades-long conflict? To a significant
1: extent, he succeeds, right? Like, the tables turn in the conflict in favor of the government and against the FARC. And that sort of changes the conditions, right? The FARC is pretty substantially weakened. So Juan Manuel Santos is elected president in 2010. He was previously a close ally of Uribe, but who decides in office that instead of sort of, you know, quote unquote, finishing the job that his predecessor and sort of mentor had started, which is sort of militarily defeating the FARC, what he's gonna do instead is use their weakened position to press for a negotiated way out of the conflict, a peace agreement.
0: Colombia's president, Juan Manuel Santos, has bet his legacy on the agreement to end a war that he said could not be won militarily.
2: In our constitution, one of the obligations of every citizen starting with the president is to seek peace. And uh, some people uh, think that uh, the peace can be achieved by killing the last member of the FARC. And that is not uh, possible, and this is not the way.
1: The peace agreement starts slowly, it starts in secret, but then when it becomes clear that it might actually succeed, it becomes the biggest news story in the last half century or even century in Colombia.
0: After more than five decades of bloodshed, there may be a chance for peace in Colombia. Again, the Colombian government and the Marxist guerrillas known as FARC are due to sign a revised peace deal Thursday to end the conflict that has killed more than 200,000 people and forced millions more Colombians From their
1: homes. I remember when this was happening, it was like everyone was just like, holy shit, is this actually going to work this time? Like, are they actually going to come to an agreement? Is the FARC actually going to disband, right, this this guerrilla organization that has existed for more than 50 years? And that's exactly what happened. In 2016, the FARC agrees to a set of terms. Those terms were not insignificant. So part of the peace agreement was a wholesale land reform, was this idea that the state would be present in these large swaths of the country from which it had been historically completely absent, except in the form of, you know, Violence, except in the form of soldiers and police. That there would be this tremendous investment of government energy into finally addressing this sort of rot at the core of Colombian society, which is this profound inequality that has existed since as long as Colombia has been a country. And it was that that finally led the FARC to say, fine, we'll disband. We'll put down our arms and we'll allow Colombia to start this new chapter. Promise that was made with the peace agreement, the promise that Colombia would finally put the war behind it, which means not just an end to the gunshots, right, and the bombs, but an end to the inequality and misery and poverty and violence and corruption and capture of the state by criminal organizations, an end to all of the things that fueled the war and caused the war in the first place. That's what people wanted. That's what people were desperately hungry for with the peace agreement. And it didn't happen that way.
3: We'll be right back.
4: Why do phone plans come with a catch? With 48, they don't. 100 gigs, all calls, all texts for 10.99, forever, and a free gig to try a reliable 4G network before you buy. Just 10.99. 10.99.
5: 10.99.
4: 10.99. Simple. Any way you hear it. 48. Changing up mobile. Fair use applies.
2: See 48.
5: Hi, it's Allie Wentworth, a middle-aged woman with a lot of questions and a lot of answers I have pulled out of my tush as host of Go Ask Allie. My listeners want more, so we are digging in. It's real, it's honest, open and unexpected, and sometimes amusing. Can you start with your infamous $19,000
2: haircut? Yes, and this is a great story I I feel about mothers and daughters with a dream and an empty bank account.
5: Just a few of our fabulous guests this season are... New York Times best-selling author, Isabel Gillies, writer and Oprah's favorite life coach, Martha Beck, and former editor of People Magazine, Jess Cagle.
2: If
0: we know intimate details about another person, then that person is socially important to us.
5: Okay, so that's what you like to gossip about.
0: Wait, what do you gossip about?
5: All new episodes of Go Ask Ali release every Thursday. Listen to Go Ask Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa
2: finished her high school diploma.
3: If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, you can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near
4: you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.
3: All right. So, David, you basically just explained that the Colombian government had signed this peace deal, which ended this over half a century long war by promising to deal with, you know, kind of inequality across the, the country of Colombia, right? So dealing with things like inequity um, around land and wealth. But it sounds like things didn't go as planned. So what, what happened? The government failed to
1: meet its end of the bargain. Dramatically so. And that happened because the president who was elected after Santos is the current president, a guy named Ivan Duque.
3: Colombia has elected its next president. Conservative Ivan Duque won 54% of the vote in Sunday's race, beating leftist Gustavo Petro by 12 points.
0: But this political unknown faces decades-old
1: challenges. He campaigned on law and order and boosting the economy, but is politically untested. All right, so tell me about Duque. So Ivan Duque is elected president in 2018. And this is in the immediate aftermath of the successful peace agreement with the FARC. And the political force that propels Duque to office is really the sort of reactionary response to the peace agreement among a certain segment of the population, which even though it's not really a majority, it is one of the most powerful, most affluent, loudest, and most organized segments of society. And that's the sort of you know, conservative core of the Colombian population that saw the peace agreement as a travesty and decried it as kind of handing the country over to the FARC, the subtext there being that it was handing the country over to the left. Duque has talked about rewriting the peace
2: accord, saying the
0: treatment of rebels has been too lenient. Colombia's constitutional court has ruled the agreement can't
1: be tampered with, so that may not be easy. Duque sets out to effectively sabotage the peace agreement by defunding the sorts of institutions that were set up by the peace agreement in order to implement the various provisions of the agreement by resorting once again to a sort of military first approach to solving every problem. That creates these conditions where you have a large, very large section of the population that was holding its breath for so long, waiting for this conflict to finally end waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. And then instead, what they get is the opposite. What they get is more violence. People see that, right? People see the FARC reforming in certain places. They just see the same shit, you know what I mean? They see the same shit that they saw for decades happening again. And they're tired of it. So this... Widespread sense of discontent with Duque's government leads people to start protesting in late 2019. And that is what comes to be known as the national strike. And we call it that because in the first instance, these protests were organized largely by labor unions. So they use this kind of terminology of a strike, even though this wasn't you know, strictly speaking what you would think of as a strike. But the term stuck as the movement kind of snowballed into this widespread, very diverse mass movement comprising nearly every social sector active in Colombian politics.
3: What sparked the protests then specifically? The reasons for the
1: protests in that kind of original moment had a lot to do with the implementation of the peace process and with the kind of underhanded refusal of the government to really implement the peace process. And there were also some more specific sort of measures that people were protesting against, largely sort of like austerity measures. And then obviously the kind of underlying factor to all of this, which is the inequality. It's after the protests start that you have this new ingredient added to the mix, which is now a very important defining ingredient, which is the element of police violence. Shortly after the beginning of the protest in 2019, the police kill a guy named Dylan Cruz. Dylan Cruz was a young guy, 18-year-old guy, who was a participant in the first wave of marches in the national strike. And during one such march in the capital, in Bogotá, he was struck in the head by a projectile that had been fired by an agent of the ESMAD, the riot squad of the national police. And that blow from this projectile wound up killing him. And his death wound up becoming a a huge rallying cry for the national strike. And it was a moment that this went from just a regular sort of protest over economic conditions into being this huge expression of rage and indignation on the part of large swaths of Colombian society.
3: All right, so you have this killing by the police of this young man. And then on top of that, people are also angry about the unfulfilled promises of the peace process and inequity as well. Yeah,
1: and it's not unrelated because a lot of this has to do with the sort of violence of the state and the fact that this is a government that insists on solving every social problem with violence. That just leads to this profound collective sense of indignation that comes from this exhaustion of... Decades of war and violence and corruption and crime and is just a people who have had enough. And the government, meanwhile, is doing everything to minimize people's concerns.
0: We have governed with our principles and our values. And one of those values has been zero tolerance with any conduct from a public servant or a member of the police or the army. That goes beyond the Colombian constitution. So we have been defenders of human rights.
1: That no, the police aren't actually killing people in the street, in spite of all the cell phone videos that you see of literally the police shooting people in the street. And the more the government does that, just the more desperately indignant people get.
3: In Colombia's capital, Bogota, Friday was the first of a four days long shutdown trial to prepare the city for a full quarantine.
1: After that initial wave of protests, the pandemic hits. And everything quiets down, as we know, all over the world,
3: not just in Colombia. Empty streets and shops offering an almost surreal atmosphere to these usually overcrowded streets. So what brings people out into the streets in April of this year? So the immediate catalyst
1: for people to start protesting again this year was a tax reform bill that President Duque introduced as a way of sort of refilling Colombia's state coffers, which had been pretty badly depleted by the economic consequences of the pandemic. And this bill, it wasn't exactly a regressive tax bill, but it did hit the middle class particularly hard. And it was the middle class that was particularly hard hit by the pandemic itself as well. So people really were unhappy about this. It was a profoundly unpopular bill. And that was the rallying cry that brought people to the streets in the first place in late April. However, Duque withdrew the tax reform bill pretty quickly, within just a few days. And people kept protesting, which was just a sign that this was about a lot more than just that one bill end this spring, in April, that same cycle that we saw at the beginning of the, of the protests in 2019, where people come out to protest something specific like the tax reform, but also these deeper things like inequality and corruption, is then met with completely disproportionate force by the police. <laughs> Dozens of people die, like right at the beginning, right? It's just all of a sudden, the state cracks down with this really shocking degree of force. And that makes the protests into this huge phenomenon that we're seeing today.
3: And I, I feel like this brings us back to kind of where we started, right? The sort of this moment right now. When does this autonomous zone in Cali sort of spring up?
1: So Puerto Resistencia, the autonomous zone in Cali, starts to take hold during the very beginning of this latest round of protests, the national strike, so late April of this
3: year. And why Cali? Like, why does it become sort of the symbol of the national uprising? What is so special about this particular place? Cali
1: is a very special city because it's one of the most racially diverse cities in Colombia. Cali is near the Pacific coast, which is where Colombia's Afro-descendant population is concentrated. So Cali has a larger black population than any other city in Colombia, and it has one of the largest black populations of any city anywhere in Latin America. It is also close to a region that is historically very significant for indigenous communities in Colombia. Not just because of the number of indigenous people who live there, but because of how organized historically those particular indigenous groups have been. And how willing and successful they have been in sort of organizing for and fighting for their rights as indigenous communities. One of the days that we went to Puerto Resistencia, because we went there almost every day that we were in Cali, happened to coincide with the moment that a large group of indigenous protesters from outside of Cali were leaving town. These vehicles were sort of moving slowly, across the intersection, this large urban intersection that is the autonomous zone of Puerto Resistencia, with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people crowded around them, cheering them on, and the people on the trucks themselves, who are pretty much all indigenous people, cheering on the people in the autonomous zone. That kind of solidarity between sectors of society, right? Between indigenous people and urban workers and urban youth and educated, you know, university students and things like that. That kind of solidarity has existed before in Colombian history, but never to this extent. They're all showing up in large numbers and they're all staying out in large numbers in cities across the country. And that kind of solidarity is not normal. It's not something that we've really seen before, not to this extent, in a country that is defined in many ways by its divisions, by its class divisions and its racial divisions. It was really remarkable to see. And to me, at least, it felt like a sign of a
3: deeper shift. I think that this brings us back to this original point that you made about how these protests are kind of a sign of this opening up of politics in Colombia. And what is the relationship between this last 60 or so years of history that you just shared and what we're seeing right now? What we're seeing right now in Colombia with the national strike, I think,
1: is the beginning of a new chapter in Colombian politics. For many years, any effort by regular people, poor people, working people to organize in order to improve the conditions of their lives. Any effort of that sort was immediately lumped in with the insurgency. You know, obviously there were sort of liberal political formations that had existed since the beginning of the Republic, but that's not the same thing. And that sort of sucked the air out of Social movements in Colombia for many years, right? It made it so that it was extremely difficult for people to pursue the same goals through different means. Through, for example, electoral politics or mass movements in the streets. Any effort of that sort was immediately lumped in with the insurgency and it was lumped in with the war. And That wasn't just a sort of rhetorical thing, right? It wasn't just a way for the government to kind of delegitimize any sort of movement for social justice by calling them guerrilleros. It was also an excuse for the state to materially and violently crush any movement for social justice. It was a pretext for any kind of left-wing politics to be marginalized, if not violently sort of erased from existence.
3: It's been a month since you left Colombia, and I'm wondering what is happening with the protests? What is happening with Puerto Resistencia and Flaco?
1: So in the time since we left Colombia, a few things have happened. The first thing is that the official committee of the national strike declared that it was going to suspend marches in order to sort of open up space to negotiate with the government. It's composed mainly of people who belong to more traditional institutions like labor unions and others like, you know, university students and things like that. And and Flaco, who was the young guy from the Primera Línea, when we asked him about this, he very explicitly told us, you know, those people don't
4: represent us. They're opportunists. We, the
1: Primera Línea, the front line, are the you know, the real expression of the people and of the strike and and you know, he basically told us that they had absolutely no intention of calling off their protest and going home even if officially the strike was over.
4: Porque incluso la gente del comité del paro nosotros ni siquiera los conocemos, no sabemos quiénes son. Solo nos damos cuenta pues por las redes sociales de que ellos existen. Cambio que nosotros sí hacemos asambleas populares.
1: On Saturday, the government was able to dismantle Puerto Resistencia. In this huge operation involving 700 or more armed uniformed agents of the state between police and armed forces, a couple of helicopters, this massive show of force, they came in. They broke up the, I believe, 18 or so individual roadblocks that made up the security perimeter for, for the autonomous zone. They pushed all the protesters out and regained control of the territory. When we found out that that happened, we obviously we reached out to Flacco to get a sense of how he was doing and what he thought. And we actually haven't heard back from him. And I'd be lying if I said that that didn't make me worried because... Well, I mean, you know, for obvious reasons, right? It's like these kids like Flaco, the kids in the front line, are the ones who have been very consciously putting their lives on the line for this, right? And many of them have died. Many of them have been seriously injured. Many of them have disappeared. And so the fact that right at the moment that Puerto Resistencia is kind of crushed is the moment that we no longer hear back from Flaco, it's, it's a little bit alarming. Of course, it's also possible that he just, like, you know, got a new SIM card for his phone and isn't getting the messages. We have no idea. We're going to keep trying to find out, but, but as of right now, I have no idea where he is or if he's well. David, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it.
4: just a quiet one catching up on me so good energy wait does it change the scene now what's hopping in the weather's feeling so serene
3: go out fresh scope no time to rest so hop a taxi up the coast road grab an ice cream back to town for a late night show yeah who knows where next we'll go yeah make a way home for a disco night, with the next adventures waiting on time come here to me come here to me I wanna grab a taxi just get free now get there
0: your way I want to get back to being in my
1: community group.
2: I want to continue having a soccer season. So I can throw parties again. (laughs) So I can go to her parties.
3: (laughs) It'd really be nice to dine in instead of getting delivery for a change.
5: So I can feel safe and protected for myself and my students.
0: We each have our own reason for why we're getting vaccinated against COVID-19. What will yours be? Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org for information on the COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
2: Thank you. There's so much going on in Latin America. In Colombia, demonstrations against proposed tax reforms have turned into countrywide protests. It can be confusing. Health authorities across Latin America are battling a rise in coronavirus infections.
3: That's where El Hilo, a Spanish-language podcast from Radio
1: Ambulante Studios and Vice News, comes in.
4: Cuando un edificio se cae, no perdona.
1: Cuando tú vives en una
3: dictadura, ¿qué opciones tienes si eres oposición? O la cárcel o el exilio.
1: Listen to El Hilo every Friday.
3: Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Special thanks to Ramon Campos and Juanita Ceballos. Vice News Reports is produced by Jesse Alejandro Cuttrell, Sophie Casis, Jen Kinney, Janice Yamoka, Julia Nutter, and Sarah Cabello. Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek and Adiza Egan. Our associate producers are Sam Egan and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Pran Bandy, and Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producer and VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is senior production manager for Vice Audio. Production coordination by Steph Brown. Fact-checking by Nicole Basolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. From iHeart executive producers Nikki Etor and Lindsay Hoffman. You know how this show ends. I'm going to ask you to go and review this podcast if you can. It really does help other people find the show. Vice News reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week.
3: Looking for the successiest new job? Or maybe the techiest? Or the chefiest? Or perhaps the salesiest? We have them all and more on Ireland's jobsiest job site, jobs.ie, where 90% of jobs advertised end in a hire, so it's the savviest place to search too. With smart technology that matches your CV with the career you're looking for, just register today and download our app to find your dreamiest job. Jobs.ie, the jobsiest job site. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom.
2: Hold my hand. You hold my hand. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.
0: We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how
5: at BelongingBeginsWithUs.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council.